You're listening to a tune called True Blue, recorded in 1960 by a tenor saxophonist known as Tina Brooks. He's hardly a household name, but he's become one of my favorite jazz musicians. I first heard his album, also called True Blue, when I was a 20-something late-night jazz DJ at a radio station in Lawrence, Kansas. I dug it then, but the album belonged to the station, and I never actually owned a copy at that time. Cut to a Saturday afternoon in 2019, as I was browsing through a record shop in my current hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia. I flipped quickly through the new release bin, giving each album cover a cursory glance. Then, a familiar pattern of blue and green squares stopped me in my tracks. It was a modern re-release of True Blue. I plucked it out immediately, clutched the album to my chest, and moved to the counter to shell out my cash. I listen to True Blue often, and I enjoy every track, every time. But I realized I don't really know that much about Tina Brooks. At least, I didn't. I set about to remedy that oversight, and I'm bringing you along for the journey. For the biographical details of Brooks' early life, I eschewed the staid Wikipedia entry, and I'll quote instead from an essay by Jack Chambers titled, Who Killed Tina Brooks? Quote, Brooks was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1932. He was christened Harold, and his twin brother was christened Harry. Harold and Harry were the youngest of eight kids, and with their sound-alike monikers, it was inevitable that one of them would get nicknamed. So Harold, who was small, became Tina, meaning teeny originally. But as he stayed small and became increasingly soft-spoken and withdrawn, it resolved itself into Tina. Nobody knew him as Harold. He was Tina. End quote. The Brooks family moved to New York in 1944 when he was 12, but Tina struggled to fit in. He was described by record producer Michael Cuscuna as shy, short, and hardly streetwise. In the city, Tina was harassed by gangs and even robbed of his saxophone in a mugging. He was sent back to Fayetteville to be raised by relatives and didn't return to New York until 
Upon his return to the city, Tina Brooks took some early sideman gigs playing R&B with a pianist named Sonny Thompson. His jazz chops grew nonetheless, and eventually he got noticed, as recounted in a tribute written for the Hard Bop homepage. Quote, in 1956, Brooks met trumpeter-composer Little Benny Harris at the Blue Morocco, a Bronx jazz club. Harris took the young tenor under his wing and taught him the vocabulary and intricacies of modern jazz. Tina was assimilating his early influences, Lester Young, Dexter Gordon, Charlie Parker, and Wardell Gray, with contemporaries like Sonny Rollins and Hank Mobley. His own style was rapidly taking shape. Blue Note executive Alfred Lyon remembers Benny Harris calling him up to a Harlem club to hear Tina in late 1957. He immediately began recording Brooks on Blue Note at a regular pace. End quote. Brooks was surrounded by talent in those early sessions. He soloed on the funky title track to organist Jimmy Smith's The Sermon and hit a slightly more mellow note while supporting guitarist Kenny Burrell on 1958's Blue Lights. not uncommon for a sought-after sideman to make the leap to leader in those days and begin recording sessions under his own name. Brooks was given that opportunity in 1958 when he recorded Minor Move, his first album under his own banner. Thank you. 
But Blue Note, for reasons unknown today, did not release Minor Move right away. In fact, Brooks recorded five albums between 1958 and 1961, and only one saw the light of day in his lifetime, the one I own, True Blue. Even then, his stars were somewhat crossed. True Blue was released at the same time as a Freddie Hubbard album titled Open Sesame, and Open Sesame became the hit which feels somewhat arbitrary when you consider that Brooks was a sideman on Hubbard's record and Hubbard appeared on True Blue. But perhaps that makes sense. Jazz historian David H. Rosenthal believes that Brooks's style of composing and playing may have held him back. He wrote about it in his book Hard Bop, Jazz and Black Music, 1955-1965. to Quote, more astringent, less popular musicians whose work is starker and more tormented, for instance, saxophonist Jackie McLean and Tina Brooks and pianist Mal Waldron and Elmo Hope, some of whom never achieved recognition outside a small circle of jazz men and aficionados, also played music that was more expressive emotionally but less stunning technically than bebop had been. The mood of their work, however, tended to be somber. They favored the minor mode, and their playing possessed a sinister, sometimes tragic air. End quote. If we accept that Brooks's material was perhaps not totally in fashion during his recording heyday, then the question becomes, what stopped him from evolving as an artist, or sticking around until tastes changed? And the answer is all too familiar to anyone who follows jazz, as David Rosenthal relates. Quote, Heroin addiction, complete with spells in jail and in hospitals, limited his professional activity for the rest of his life. The official cause of his death in 1974 was kidney failure. He had been too ill to play for several years." End quote. Brooks was just 42 years old when he died, 
and only lived to see one of his albums released to the public. Fortunately, those four almost lost albums were eventually rediscovered. Jack Chambers revealed the circumstances of the posthumous Tina Brooks revival in his essay. Quote, If it were not for Michael Kuskuna, Tina Brooks would be completely forgotten today. Kuskuna got access to the Blue Note vaults in 1975, ten years after the conglomerate Liberty Records bought out the original owners. The Blue Note stockpile had been gathering dust even before the sellout, and when Kuskuna started opening tape reels, he discovered several unissued sessions. Many of them involved Brooks as either leader or sideman, and although Kuskuna has been careful to avoid any hint of censure, he would surely have to agree that the neglect of Brooks by the Blue Note hierarchy was devastating and hardly arbitrary. End quote. Brooks's debut leader date, Minor Move, was brought to light in 1980, six years after his untimely death. It was followed quickly by another titled Street Singer. Rosenthal wrote that the title track to Street Singer is an authentic hard bop classic where pathos, irony, and rage come together in a performance at once anguished and sinister. In 1998, a recording called Back to the Tracks came out, and in 2002, a full 41 years after it was originally recorded, an album presciently titled The Waiting Game was released. Years after Brooks's death, legendary trumpeter Freddie Hubbard gave him a heartfelt endorsement, which feels like a nice note to end on. I loved Tina, he said. He had a nice feeling. He would write shit out on the spot and it would be beautiful. He wrote Gypsy Blue for me on the first record and I loved it. I just loved it. Tina made my first record date wonderful. He wrote and played beautifully. What a soulful, inspiring cat. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about a soulful, inspiring cat named Tina Brooks.